0: If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, as we resume our study in the Gospel of John, for the next two weeks we'll be looking at John chapter 8. Um, We we looked at the first part, verses uh, 1 through 11, uh, a few weeks back, and this week we'll look at verses 12 through 30 together. Let me try and help you get back into the Gospel of John, because it's been a little bit since we've been there. The Gospel of John calls us as readers as well as everyone who has read it over the centuries to believe in Jesus and find life in him. That's the main idea of this whole Gospel, believe in Jesus and find life in him. This book is not a random collection of short stories from the life of Jesus. Rather, there is purpose, there is intention in the words that John has recorded. The seven signs that he writes of, the seven I am statements on the lips of Jesus, the encounters and conversations between Jesus and individuals, or between Jesus and the disciples, or between Jesus and the Pharisees, or as Jesus stands before the crowds. Everything that John has written is here so that we might believe in Jesus, and find life in him. As we read this gospel, we find that John is patiently and purposely, purposefully helping us to see who Jesus is. And not only that, but he's also helping us to understand just what kind of life he is offering to us and what it means to believe in him. As John reveals Jesus to us, he is also revealing us to us. He is revealing our hearts through the words and the actions of the various people that we meet in this gospel. And we find that, like them, we often think in very earthly ways. But Jesus is from above, and he brings heavenly wisdom and heavenly insight and heavenly truth into our earthly hearts and minds. And so by the grace of his Spirit, he reveals the earthly thinking that we have and calls us to receive his heavenly wisdom. It's one of the big themes that we've been seeing in the Gospel of John. And presently in our study, we're seeing how Jesus brings this heavenly wisdom to bear on an annual feast that was celebrated by the Jewish people. If you look at verse 12, it begins with the word again. And that that little word again in verse 12 takes us all the way back to chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, where Jesus announces that he is living water. And we're, from that Taking taking us back to chapter 7, we're reminded that the events of chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 all occur within the context of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles and the celebration of that feast in the city of Jerusalem. You remember that this was one of the, the three key feasts in the Jewish calendar and it was one that was marked by the highest joy and excitement. This was Israel's annual camp out. They made small booths and, and lived in those booths, in those tents for a, a week remembering the exodus out of Egypt when they had to live in similar dwellings. But it was also a harvest feast. It was a celebration of, of God's provision not only in the exodus but in the present and also a time of asking for the rains that would continue to bring in that harvest and provide for them. The the tents were one of the pictures that communicated truth to them. But the other two key themes in this feast were the themes of water and light. Water and light. Maybe you'll remember that ceremony that we described a, a few weeks back where the priests would draw water from the Pool of Siloam. And in this big procession, they would bring them to the altar that was there in the temple. And it was during that, that procession, during that, that water ceremony that Jesus announced, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. Regarding this water ceremony, D.A. Carson notes that the ancient Jewish writers stated that, quote, he who, has not, he, he who has not seen the joy of the place of water drawing has never in this life seen joy, end quote. That's the kind of celebration that was happening here during the Feast of Booth, specifically during that water ceremony. And then Carson writes of this quote from the Mishnah. He says, quote, This extravagant claim stands just before the description of the lighting of the four huge lamps in the temple's court of women and of the exuberant celebration that took place under their lights. Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestras cut loose, and some sources attest that this went on every night of the Feast of Tabernacles, with the light from the temple area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. In this context, Jesus declares to the people, I am the light of the world. Maybe you can try to capture in your mind these images of joy and celebration of a a dance party, as it were. Uh, imagine these men with, with torches filling the court of the women in the temple complex and dancing to the music that the priests were playing. All of the uh, Think about the light of these four gigantic torches there on the Temple Mount, the highest point there in the city, and you could just see them glowing each night of this festival. And in the context of that joy, we hear these words of Jesus and of the conversation that then happens between him and the Pharisees. So with that picture of that festival and of the joy in your mind, look at John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. God's word says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father." So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12 is not the first time that he has present, been presented as the light, nor will it actually be the last time in John's Gospel that Jesus is talked about as the light. We read earlier, Joshua read for us from John chapter three and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that picks up on this theme. But from the very beginning, John was talking about Jesus as the light. In fact, John 1, 4 to 13 is very instructive for our passage. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to read John 1, 4 to 13. And as I do, just think about the parallels that you hear in John 1 uh, with our passage here in John chapter 8. It says this about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god those verses in many ways describe what we read here in chapter 8 namely that jesus is presented as the light of the world through witnesses he is rejected as the true light of the world and yet there is still hope for people to believe and to receive him as the light through a supernatural act of God's grace. And so to that end, we're going to state our main idea like this. Receive Jesus as the light of the world, because he alone can rescue us from darkness and death. Receive Jesus as the light of the world. Why? Because he alone can rescue us from darkness and death. As we reflect on that call, we're going to see that what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. We're going to think about the fact that we all naturally walk in darkness. And then we're going to see the hope that we can believe and we can find the light of life. So my hope is, that this not only leads us to worship of Jesus as the light of the world, but that it also helps us to consider how we might present the person of Jesus to others in light of these things, especially to, to those who are in the darkness of unbelief. How, by the power of God's Spirit, might we help others to see who Jesus is and find him to be the light of life? How can we announce to the world with love and confidence, Receive Jesus as the light of the world because he alone can rescue us from darkness and death. My final hope would be that if you've never received Jesus as the light of the world, then today you would believe and you would find life in him. Let's begin by thinking about the truth of verse 12, namely that Jesus is the light of the world. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus is the light of world the world. We've seen that John has already spoken about Jesus as the light of the world. But even before John, the Messiah was prophesied about using the exact same imagery, Isaiah 9 2, a wonderful passage that we often read at Christmas time says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. During this very feast the Jewish people were celebrating the light of God, remembering his presence among them in the fire and the cloud of the Exodus. And they were waiting for their Messiah, who for many of them looked like a national king or a political ruler of Israel. But the prophets said that this light was going to shine beyond Israel. He would be the light of the world. Later in Isaiah, we see this, that this coming light is going to be for the entire world. Isaiah 49.6, the Lord says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This, this hope of, a, of light was and is ultimately for the fullness of God's coming kingdom where Jesus himself will be the light. In Zechariah 14, 5-9 which is likely a text that was read during the Feast of Booths, the prophet combines these images of water and light as he talks about the coming kingdom. We read there, Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Jesus' announcement that he is the light of the world draws all of this and more, all of these images together, and therefore it is a bold claim to the fact that he is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that he is the one who is going to bring god's presence near to us he is the one who leads us out of the darkness and out of death and out of ignorance into the light of life and true knowledge he is the messiah he is the savior of the entire world and he will reign as the king of the universe on the last day that is what jesus is saying When he says, I am the light of the world. And therefore, everyone is called to follow him as the true light, as the only light. I wonder if we might imagine ourselves all together, lost in the woods in the middle of the night. Have you ever been lost in the woods in the middle of the night? Imagine us all together in that situation. And as we assess this situation, we realize that only one of us brought a flashlight. We all knew who it was. It was Joshua, because Joshua's always got a flashlight on him. You have one right now? Maybe. He does. <laughs> well, Joshua has the only light. Anyone else got a flashlight on him? Oh, it's, Lauren, okay, you ruined my illustration, Lauren. That's okay. <laughs> but we've only got one light. Joshua's got the only light. Oh, we got the cell phones, I apologize. I didn't even think about that. Oh well. Anyways, let's pretend you don't have cell phones either. Okay, we're, we're really going into the realm of pretend now. So Joshua's got the only light. So by default, Joshua becomes the one that we all follow. Why? Because he's got the only light. And therefore, he has the only real promise of us escaping the darkness of the woods. And so Jesus stands up and he says that he is the true and the only light of life and truth. So to not follow him is to walk in darkness. That's your only other option. If you don't follow Jesus, you don't have light. You are walking in darkness. But to believe in him is to find ourselves on the path that leads to true and everlasting life. Because not only does he have the light, but he knows the way. Note here that it, that follow it says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Follow, in this context, is a synonym for believe. Because the kind of belief that John is calling us to in this gospel is not something that only finds expression in our minds. True belief involves a love for Christ in our hearts and involves an obedience of our wills. To truly believe in Jesus is to follow him with all that we have. And to follow Jesus is to find Life, or more particularly, to find the the light of life. That's a phrase that deserves some meditation. Jesus is the light that shines and reveals to us what true life is. He helps us to see that the things that we often look to for life are in fact death, but that belief in him And walking in his ways leads us to life, to satisfaction, to shalom in this life and in the life to come. Well, after that statement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We might expect that the discussion that would follow would be a discussion about how Jesus is the light of the world or what it means to follow him. But that's not at all what we find, is it? at least not directly. Rather, the Pharisees want to discuss one of their favorite topics, authority. (laughs) They want to know what gives Jesus the right to make such a claim. And their words, as well as Jesus' response, help us to see that like them, we naturally walk in darkness. This is verses 13 through 20. We move from seeing that Jesus is the light of the world to seeing that we naturally walk in darkness. This is essentially what Jesus has already said, but it's the negative form of it. So to follow Jesus is to never walk in darkness, but to have the light of life. Therefore, to not follow him is to walk in darkness and never have the light of life. And that is the state of every human heart before the light of salvation arrives to us through faith. So when the Pharisees hear Jesus making this claim to be the light of the world, they immediately challenge him. And they seem to base their challenge actually on what Jesus said in John five thirty one, in John five thirty one, Jesus says, "If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true." And that what they say here is pretty much word for word. In verse thirteen, the Pharisees said, "You are bearing witness about yourself; your testimony is not true." They also seem to have the Old Testament law in their minds, which Jesus references in verse seventeen, to wit- and, and which states there is a need for two or three witnesses to establish two or three witnesses to establish the truth of something. We all know the practical wisdom of this, of the need for witness, whether it's applied in fights amongst siblings or in the highest courts of law. The need for witnesses to establish the truth of something is perfectly understandable. If two of my children come to me with conflicting stories, I start looking for witnesses. Uh, If two people end up in court because of a dispute, The right witnesses can make or break their case and if we're going to stake our eternal souls on jesus then we want to be certain that he is who he says he is we want some witnesses so did the pharisees have a point well the problem is that in our darkness we don't understand or accept certain truths about who jesus says he is or the many witnesses that he offers because if we've been paying attention to the gospel of john then we know that the last thing that Jesus is doing is making unsupported, isolated claims about who he is. Go back and read chapter 5 uh, if you want to think more about this, because he talks about all of the witnesses to who he is. And here he rehashes some of that material for the, for the Pharisees, pointing out all of the things that, that we don't know, or at least the things that we naturally deny So what are the things that we don't know? What are the things the Pharisees don't know and the things that we don't know because we are in darkness? Verses 14 to 16, Jesus makes it clear that we don't know where Jesus is from and we don't know where he is going. In other words, we don't know Jesus' origins. We don't know where he's from. We don't know where he is going. What does this have to do with his authority to claim that he is the light of the world? Here's my best stab at it. I wonder if it's something like an FBI agent showing up at your doorstep to arrest you. It's one person. They might not even have a uniform of any kind on. And you can ask them, who are you and where are you from? And they would say, I'm from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And that individual's authority to arrest you has to do with where he or she is from, which gives them the right to do certain things. And Jesus knows that he is from heaven, specifically though that he is from the Father. He is from God. As verse 16 says, he was sent by the Father, and as the passage makes clear, he never does anything without the Father. And here the divide between earthly and heavenly thinking arises, or we might say fleshly and spiritual thinking. In verse 15, Jesus says that the Pharisees judge him, how? According to the flesh, meaning that they assume that he as a mere man cannot claim to be the light of the world or claim to be from heaven or from God himself. Carson says it well, he says, they see his flesh as it were, but never contemplate the possibility that he could be the word made flesh. Again, the reason that we don't see Jesus for who he is and the reason our friends and our neighbors question his claims is because in our sinfulness we look at him and we judge him. How? According to the flesh and we fail to realize that he's from heaven. He's from a completely different realm which means that he speaks in a unique way that we have to be given ears to hear. But we don't naturally listen. Instead, what do we do? We judge. That's what verse 15 says. And yet unlike us, Jesus does not judge anyone, he says. Meaning specifically that he doesn't judge us according to the flesh. He's not looking for us to measure up to some sort of worldly standard like good works so or the right family of origin or some economic status. He doesn't judge us the way that we so often judge other people, measuring their, earth, their worth by some earthly or fleshly standard. He doesn't even judge us the way that we judge him. If Jesus does judge, verse 16, it's going to be according to his heavenly spiritual wisdom, and therefore it will be perfect. We can be confident that on the last day we will be judged perfectly, and we will be judged by what we've done with the person of Jesus Christ. We'll be judged spiritually. Have we believed in him? Have we received him as the light of the world? Or have we rejected him in favor of earthly wisdom? As we think about judgment, we could say that if that's how God judges us, then we who are children of God by faith in Jesus, that's how we should judge others as well. When we look at others, we should look at them with spiritual, heavenly eyes. Meaning we should ask things like if they are, a ch- if they are children of the Father with whom we are brothers and sisters. Or maybe if they are those to whom we could hold out the light of the gospel to so that they could walk in the light of life. I think in some sense there's a, there's a call here to reject worldly, earthly judgment of others. That's something that we're always drawn into, to look at people and to judge them based on earthly standards. So students, as you head back to school, don't get trapped in the cycle of judging others on the basis of silly external earthly standards look at people with the eyes of jesus and judge them according to whether or not they know who he is you who are employed in your workplace don't get roped into the ways that we so often judge others with critical and worldly eyes at the store at the park online everywhere don't judge people with worldly eyes like everyone else does why not Because in the words of C.S. Lewis, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What if we judged people in that way? If we looked at them and said, there are no ordinary people, but there are eternal souls. And we looked at them with not fleshly eyes, but spiritual eyes. We've seen that we don't know Jesus' origins. And then at the end of verse 16, Jesus mentions his father. And we find in verses 17 through 20, he makes it clear that we don't know him or his father. In other words, Jesus says, we do not know God. That's a bold claim. We do not know God. Remember who he's talking to. The Pharisees are the religious elites of the day and this man from Nazareth with questionable origins and with no proper training has the audacity to say that they do not know God. But it's true. And do you know what? We who know Christ on the authority of the scriptures with great humility can say to everyone who rejects Jesus, You don't know God. That's a bold claim. But everyone in America knows God, right? I mean, unless they identify as atheist or agnostic, most of the people that you meet on a daily basis, if you said, do you know God, what would they say? Yes, of course I do. But if they don't receive Jesus, and receive, what does receive mean? Follow, means to follow him. And if they don't, receive Christ, believe in him, truly follow him, then Jesus says they don't know God and they're trapped in darkness. If their life is not marked by the kind of life-changing belief in Christ that John describes, they don't know God. They just think that they do in the same way that the Pharisees did. In verse 17, Jesus goes back to this issue of him needing witnesses to his identity, identity and He interestingly says to the Pharisees, It says in your law that the testimony of two people is true. Now we know Jesus is not against the law. He came to fulfill the law. But it seems as if he's distancing himself from the Pharisees' misapplication of the law. But he's also going to acquiesce to their standards. He says, I'll give you two witnesses, me and my father. (laughs) To which they respond, Where is your father? And that question is all the evidence that Jesus needs to say that they don't know him and they don't know his father. Because again, how are they thinking? They're thinking in an earthly, non-spiritual way. He's been expounding on who his father is. He's made it clear that if they knew him, they would also know his father. Back in John chapter 1, Jesus has explained the father to us. But trapped in their earthly thinking, they want to see Jesus' father in some physical way. They cannot fathom that his Father is in heaven, that his Father is God himself, just as he is God. And none of us will know God either unless we're given eyes to see. We read John 3 because not just the light imagery, but why? Because Nicodemus, trained in the law, didn't see. He needed to be born again. And if we're going to see the Father as Jesus wants us to, then we must be born again. Now, if you're reading this, you would imagine that a statement like this, you don't know who God is, is the last straw for Jesus. I mean, the Pharisees have already been getting ready to kill him, right? And now, verse 20 says, he makes this statement in a very public spot in the temple complex. It says, you don't know God, and everyone else hears him. And yet, verse 20 also tells us that, that no one arrest him, arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And here John tips his hand a bit, and we begin to see with more clarity that Jesus' hour is going to be the hour of his arrest and of his death. But that hour was not now, because no one was going to take Jesus' life from him. He would lay it down, he would do it of his own will, and he would do it in his own time. The need for his death is actually revealed, I think, in verses 21 to 26. Because in addition to going over some of the same points once more, Jesus adds the truth that if we will not accept his origins, if we will not accept his identity, then we will die in our sins. I think that's the emphasis of verses 21 to 27. We will die in our sins. That's a strong phrase, isn't it? But it's no accident. Like John 6, where Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood multiple times. <laughs> it wasn't an accident. Same here. He says, you will die in your sins. He repeats that phrase three times. He also repeats these themes that he's brought up, namely where he's from, where he's going, who he is, and who the Father is uh, through the end of the chapter. These are all things that we don't naturally know. So Jesus, Jesus is going to explain them to us with his heavenly wisdom. So he begins in verse 21 by saying that he's going away, referring to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his return to the Father. But when he leaves, the Pharisees, he says, are going to keep looking for him. It would seem to be not him in particular, but who are they looking for? They're going to look for the Messiah. They're going to keep looking for the Messiah after he lives. And he says they will look until they die in their sins, unless they admit that he is the one they've been looking for. And to die in our sins is to be unable to enter the presence of God which is where Jesus is ultimately headed and which is why he says you can't follow me if you reject me. Here he is. He's before them. He's before us. He's the light of the world that we're all looking for. He's the one who deals with our sins so that when we die we can enter into the presence of God. But if we reject him then we will wander for the rest of our lives in darkness, and we will die in unforgiven sin. The Pharisees ironically ask if this idea that they can't follow him, they say, does that mean he's going to commit suicide? When in fact, they are the ones that are going to kill him. He's going to lay down his life, how? By placing his life into their murderous hands. The reason, again, stated for why they cannot come to where he is going is because why? They are from below, meaning they are from this world, not speaking that they're, they're from hell. No, they're, they're from below. They're from this world. While he is from above, he is not from this world. And unless they will see who he is and where he is from, they will remain earthly. They will remain in their sin. They will die in their sins, just like all of us will if we do not do the same. Because as Paul says, to know Jesus is to be transferred out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. It's to, to go from the realm of earth into the heavenlies. And the way to make that transition, verse 24, is to believe Jesus says that I am." The translation here says, "To believe that I am He, but the He is not there. It's just I am. It's the same phrase that introduces all of the I am statements, and it's the one that at the end of this chapter is going to cause them to pick up stones to stone him when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And yet in this moment, Jesus is enigmatic enough that they just say, well, who are you? <laughs> I still wanna know who he is you tell us to believe that I am. So who are you, Jesus? To which Jesus says, I'm exactly who I've been telling you I was, I am, since the very beginning. And I have more to say, and I have more to judge, because I'm speaking words from the Father. But again, verse 27 is clear, they did not understand. And honestly, I got to this point, and I said, it does feel a little helpless. I feel like I can relate to the Pharisees a little bit. I I feel like Jesus in some ways is asking blind people to see. How can we see him? How can we understand who he is if we have earthly eyes? These are the only eyes I have. Jesus, if I can't see you with my earthly eyes, how am I supposed to see you? Is this some sort of trick? I think the hope is found in verses 28 through 30. I think that In verses 28 through 30, there's reason to believe that we can have the light of life. That's the final thing I want to think about. We can have the light of life. Read those verses with me once more. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that i do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the father taught me and he who sent me is with me he has not left me alone for i always do the things that are pleasing to him as he was saying these things many believed in him have you ever squatted down on the ground and thought about what the world looks like from the perspective of a toddler it's an interesting experiment to just kind of get eye level with your children and then start to look around and think about how they see the world. And suddenly you find there, there's a reason that I need to lift them up so that they can see different things. They can't see the top of the counter. Uh, last week, the dunk booth was out here and Ann wanted to watch it, but there were too many people. So I put her on my shoulders so that she could see. I lifted her up. And here Jesus says that there's a way for us to see who he is. But it's not by us being lifted up. It's by him being lifted up. It's when Jesus is lifted up, he says, that we will know who God is. In the mystery of God's will, I think what he is saying here is that the only way we can know him is for him to be lifted up to die. That that at the cross, our vision of who He is becomes clear. Because it's there that we come to know that that Jesus is the I Am. We come to know that He only ever spoke what the Father called Him to speak. That We come to see that He was sent by the, the Father for that purpose. We come to see that the Father never left Him. We come to see that that he only ever did what pleased the Father, including going to the cross. It's when Jesus is lifted up, it's the cross that that brings everything together. Can I give you another C.S. Lewis quote? He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, not only because I see the sun, but because by the sun, I see everything else. Lewis has got a great argument, and I'll send you a link maybe to what he's talking about, but there's something here. I think in a similar way that the cross brings into focus all of these things that we don't know. And if God in his grace gives us eyes to see the beauty of the cross, if we can see the beauty of Jesus dying for the sins of the world, then everything else, in some ways, comes into focus. We see where he is from, and we see where he is going. We see who he is, and we see who the Father is. We realize that if we don't believe in him, we're going to die in our sins. But if we can trust in that atoning work, then we will be forgiven. We won't die in our sins. But he can forgive us of our sins because he has died in our place. Verse 30 tells us that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Isn't that amazing? A miracle happened. People's eyes were opened in that moment. They crossed from death into life. Maybe someone's eyes have been opened today and you see the cross for what it is. You see who God is, and you see the forgiveness that he offers. And if that's the case, then I would beg of you to believe, to follow Jesus, to stop walking in darkness and death, and find him to be the light of life, to find that he is the one that can bring forgiveness of sins, so that when you die, you don't die in your sins, but you're able to go to where he is, that you can find the light of life here and now and for all eternity. And if you've seen that already, if you're a child of God, by the miracle of the new birth, your eyes have been opened to see the cross and to see it not as something to be pushed away, but as something to be received and gloried in, then I want to invite you to come to the table today and allow this, Celebration of the Lord's Supper be an opportunity to maybe refocus your eyes, a way to declare that Jesus is the light of the world and to remember that it's in seeing him lifted up and it's in looking at the cross clearly that we see everything else, that our vision is cruciform, our vision is shaped by the cross, that Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension are the light of life to all who believe, and they are the light that shapes our entire lives. If you have received Christ, if your hope of salvation, if your hope of the forgiveness of sins, if your hope that you will not die in your sins is because Jesus has died in your place, and you've put your faith in him, then I wanna invite you to join us in taking this meal. We also ask that you've been baptized, not because baptism is necessary for salvation, but because it's a sign that you truly have followed Christ, that you are walking with him as it says here uh, and not walking in darkness. If that's not the case, I'd ask you just to let the bread and the cup to pass. I want to give us a moment of silence to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, Trevor, would you be willing to help me to pass the bread and the cup? Thank you. So let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray for us And we'll pass the bread and the cup and take them together. Father, we are reminded that apart from the work of your grace, we are lost in darkness and we can never come to where you are but because of the cross, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. You have called us into the light and we see who you are because you've allowed us to see the wonder of of your cross. So we pray now, Lord, as we remember your, your death, that you would refocus our eyes, that you would make us people who are shaped by who you are and by what you've done, that we're shaped by the gospel that we think in new ways because of what you've done through Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen.